Hey, Sassnacks, It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am discussing 309, The Doldrums. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that no matter where you're listening to this podcast, you can always find the Sassnack Files on multiple listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and a multitude of other platforms. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of your Outlander needs, including news from our cast on all of their new projects, news on Outlander Season 6, and for Diana Gabaldon's new book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. Also, we like to play all kinds of fun games on the Sassnack Files, so right now we are currently working our way through the best episode of Season 5. I'm getting ready to post our first episode matchup for season five, so make sure not to miss that. I will try to get that up in the next couple of days. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season three, episode nine, The Doldrums. Next three episodes of Outlander are a bit of a conundrum for me. I always have a bit of a rough time with them. I'm not sure what whether that's because it's not really what I consider to be Outlander or if it's the writing. I don't think that it's necessarily a problem of the setting because I didn't have an issue with it in the books. And to be honest, the doldrums is probably my favorite of this chunk where they're on their way to Jamaica. Just because I felt the writing was good, I felt that the story was good. I still don't think it holds a candle to the first half of season three, but hey, we're here to break it down. And I am actually excited to talk to you guys about it because there's quite a bit that happens in this episode. And I felt like it had a good arc, a good pacing to it. It's not just about Jamie and Claire anymore. There are more characters involved. We learn a little bit about Mr. Willoughby. We also get a taste of Fergus and Marsley and what their relationship entails. I think we get a little bit more of that next week in Heaven and Earth. But it's really good overall to kind of see the Outlander family growing a little bit. We get a bit more information on some of our minor characters or secondary characters as I like to refer to them. So really excited to chat with you guys about this today. When this episode starts out, Jamie, he pretty much just comes out and says that he feels like he brought this on, like that he's the reason that Ian got abducted, that he basically brought bad juju into it by trying to go and get that box of jewels to pay off Leary and that it was asking too much and he was being too greedy And that God is punishing him for trying to do something for himself. And Claire comes out and tells him, Jamie, no God worth his salt would take your nephew away from you just because you wanted to be happy. And I really, I just felt so bad for Jamie that (laughs) he always finds a way to blame himself, doesn't he? I really feel like that is probably the most Jamie Fraser thing anybody could do is just blame themselves, put it all on their shoulders, carry the load. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating at times. And I do get that to some degree because I feel like it's a natural response when something happens to examine your actions and 
look at what could I have done differently? Where would this situation have gone if I hadn't done X, Y, or Z? So I do get it, but at the same time, I'm like, Jamie, you didn't ask for pirates to come and kidnap your nephew and take him to Jamaica, okay? <laughs> like, give yourself a break. So that's kind of where Jamie's headspace is. And of course, this is coming off the heels of him and Claire's ginormous fight where Claire found out that he married Leary. And so I don't really think that they have had much of a chance to have a conversation about all of this. It's just kind of lingering in the air between them. And Claire, obviously, at the end of the last episode, threatens to leave. She said, I don't know if I belong here anymore. It just, it's really hard. And I didn't expect it to be this hard. And it wasn't ever this hard before. So maybe that's just a sign that I'm not supposed to be here. To which Jamie freaked out about. He's like, how could you say that? And so you kind of get the feeling that once Ian was abducted, everything got put on hold. They haven't had any conversations since that time. And it's all about putting all of their energy and focus into finding young Ian. So that's one thing that I genuinely liked about this episode, because I did feel like there was this kind of push and pull between Jamie and Claire, both of them kind of tiptoeing around the other a little bit, even because they may regret things that they said or be constantly turning over what the other person said in their head, feeling really uncertain about the whole situation. And by the end of this episode, you really feel like they've come out the other side of it stronger for it and that they've really come to come to a decision about where they're moving from here. So I think that the evolution of Jamie and Claire's relationship is formed in a couple of different scenes. There's just these touching moments where one kind of softens to the other and you can see it happening. I mean, I could go on forever about how much I love Katrina and Sam and how good they are together. I don't think that that's something that any of us disagree on as we're sitting here doing this podcast and listening to it. I think that's something we can all agree on. But it's in these little scenes. It's not necessarily in the huge scenes. I mean, obviously, they are fantastic in those together. But it's the little scenes that endear us to this couple and make us aspire to this epic romance. And some examples of this are really embedded into this episode, which I think just makes me appreciate it that much better. The first one we're getting is when Jamie's first coming into the seasickness and they're having this discussion in their birth. And all of a sudden, Claire looks over and sees this trunk. And he said, Fergus and Marsley brought us some things from Lollybrock. And she said, our things. And she opens the trunk and she sees all of her old dresses. And she's like, these were my clothes from when we were in Paris. And Jamie just says, I, I couldn't bring myself to part with them because they were memories of you. Like, I would never, ever do that. Claire just looks at him and she, you can just tell like she's softening a little bit because that's the Jamie that she knows and loves. For him to acknowledge that he never would have given away something that reminded him of her really, I think, reminds her of how she felt trying to give his wedding ring to Frank. Because that's the one thing that she had left to remind her of Jamie And these clothes were like that for Claire. I mean, she gave him the dragonfly in amber that Human Roe had given them, but he lost that on the battlefield at Culloden. So when he came back to Lollybrock, 
Those clothes were all he had, and for him to say that he never would have parted with them because they reminded him of her, I think that went a long way to show her that maybe we are on the same page. Like, maybe we really did mourn each other the same way and feel the same things in that 20 years apart. I think that started to close the gap between them a little bit. And then we get this other really beautiful scene between them with Good Night Moon which is a children's book. I'm not sure if it's just a children's book that is really big in the U.S. or if it is worldwide, but I know specifically in the United States, it is a very popular children's book, and it is basically just a bedtime story telling the world good night before you close your eyes and go to sleep. And when Claire and Jamie are standing on the ship deck talking about the moon, Jamie is saying, it's just you, me, and the man in the moon. And then Claire is telling him about her life in Boston a little bit before she came back to him and how men had just flown to the moon. Then it kind of peters into this story about Brianna and how she loved the story Good Night Moon. And she could recite every word in that word for word before she ever even learned to read. And that she would read it to her toy bunny and how much she loved rabbits. So I felt like as much as this was a device to tell Jamie a little bit more about his daughter, for him to get these little tidbits, it was also a really great way for us as an audience to get in Claire's headspace a little bit and see how much she is missing her daughter so, so much. It was really heartbreaking for me to watch, honestly. And I love how Jamie just stood there with his arms around her and let her talk because that's what she needed. And then when she was done, he says, you miss her. And she said, terribly. And he just hugs her tighter because he knows that as much as He is so happy to have Claire here. He can't understand her pain because Brianna has always been lost to him. And he never had a chance to really know this mysterious little girl that Claire is so attached to. It's it's a bond that, first off, I've been told. I mean, obviously, I don't have any children and I can't fully understand a mother's love, but... I've been told by the women in my life that you just can't understand a mother's love for her child until you experience it for yourself. It's it rocks your world, literally. Like it's like everything is rooted up from its axis and your child is all that matters and you would do anything for them. So for a lot of people, this was the problem with Claire deciding to go back to Jamie. Because there was the argument in a lot of people's minds that a mother would never leave her child to go back to her husband. Like if she had to choose between one or the other, she just wouldn't. But then I've heard from other sources that leaving your small child who is still dependent on you for everything is a completely different situation from leaving your adult child who is willingly telling you to go. So that's kind of a situation where, yes, a lot of women might not think of it that way, but it's not an unrealistic situation either by any means. I think that that's really great to kind of give us insight into Claire and also a little bit into Jamie that he just wants Claire to be happy. And he tells her in the very first scene of this episode, 
you know, I told you that you belong with me and we're mated for life, but if you truly want to go back, I will take you to the stones myself. All he wants is for her to be happy no matter what she decides. And I think that that is romantic, but also just breaks my heart at the same time because we know how miserable he was without her. And he knows how miserable he would be again, but he would do it if that's what she needed. So just kind of getting a a deeper look at where our characters are at after that argument that they had in First Wife is just, it's, it's really great. That's one of my favorite things about this episode. So that by the time we get to the very end, where they have their first intimacy since that argument, we really get a sense that this is their coming together. They have made the decision to be together and to fight for what they have and that they are fully accepting of the fact that it's not going to be easy, but that they do love each other and they're willing to fight for what they have. I also think that we get this really beautiful conversation after they make love. Jamie's looking at Claire's hair, which she went to great lengths to hide when she first went back. She dyed it because she wanted to look like she did when she left him. She didn't want to appear as though she had aged. She wanted to maintain this idea that she was frozen in time and that she was still the woman that he fell in love with and vice versa. I think that that's been the biggest struggle for Jamie and Claire over this entire season is that they've both been struggling to convince each other that they're the same person that they were all those years ago. And that is just not the case. And I think in in this episode, they come to terms with that. They accept that about each other. And Jamie even says, he said, you know, I like the gray. That's kind of what I take to be his acknowledgement of, yes, I know that you've changed. I've changed, but it's okay. We can We can learn to live with it. And it's she's saying the same thing. When she looks at him and she says, you know, I knew when I decided to come back that we would have to learn to get used to each other again. And so I felt really good about where Jamie and Claire were by the end of this episode. And then in true Outlander fashion, they just blew it to pieces. That's the one thing that just really just grinds my gears about this episode is that As always, just about the time they get to a good place in their relationship, they're ripped apart again. That's one of my pet peeves about season three is that they're together and then they're apart and then they're together and then they're apart. It's really just hard for me to accept. And that's what I like so much about later seasons and later books is that it's not about Jamie and Claire and whether they are going to tackle it together or be separated will they or won't they? That's not what it's about. It's about them taking on the world together and maintaining their marriage and strengthening their relationship. So that's what I admire so much about them moving forward past season three. I really did admire that in the final scene that Jamie and Claire have together in this episode, it's once again, Jamie's like, are you mad? You can't go on a ship infested with plague. <laughs> and we feel like, oh, great, here we go again. This conversation that they had in Creme de Menthe about her incessant need to save people that are sick or injured. But it's not the same conversation. They have grown from where they were at that point in their relationship because very calmly she says, I took an oath 
and I can't stand by and do nothing while people need me. And he looks at her and he says, I've taken an oath now and then myself and none of them lightly. Then he says, there's no talking you out of this, is there? And she says, well, it would appear that we're both older and wiser. (laughs) So they've come to this point where they fully trust each other. They're confident in their relationship and where they are moving forward. Jamie doesn't have that fear associated with letting Claire be who she is and do what she's going to do. He feels very comfortable with her and who she is now. And I think that the same can be said for her. So whenever she makes the decision to go over there, he just says, I will be waiting for you when you come back. I'm not going to take my eyes off that ship until you are back aboard. I just felt really good about it. And then they freaking shot it to hell. But what are you going to do? It's Outlander. There's two more things that I want to talk about. But the first one is probably the most important of the episode, which is Fergus and Marsley. And they cut the scene in First Wife that kind of shows that Fergus and Marsley may have had a little bit of contact prior to this episode. And I think they did it for the shock value that we get in the doldrums when Fergus shows up and then, hey, there's Marsley and oh my God, they're married. (laughs) We kind of have that reaction that Jamie has. And he is like, what the hell are you doing here? And they're like, uh, Fergus and I are married. And he was like, what in the name of holy God do you mean? <laughs> that whole entire scene was absolutely hilarious. I love, love, love the humor this scene has because Jamie is just like, you can see the panic on his face. He can't believe what he's hearing. <laughs> so Fergus and Marsley have been courting for several months, so since August, so probably at least six months. And Jamie has been kept in the complete dark about this. When he finds out that they're handfast, which technically means they're married, that is just like his whole world is shattered. He's like, what the hell is happening? For somebody that's so used to knowing everything and being in control of every situation, he feels very out of power right now. So the concept of hand fasting, which for those of us in the Outlander universe, we're pretty, pretty familiar with this concept, but it's basically in remote parts of the Highlands where people that were qualified to marry other people, whether it's a man of the church or someone of a legal standing, they're kind of few and far between in the remote parts of the Highlands. So there's this tradition where if people hold hands in front of witnesses and declare themselves wed, then that contract stands for a year and a day. And if at the end of that time, the couple decides that they still want to be married, they can legally get married or they can go their separate ways. So this is what Fergus and Marsley have done, but it's not binding unless they consummate the marriage, which at this juncture, Fergus and Marsley have not done. And so Jamie's like, well, it's not binding yet. So turn the ship around. Marsley's going home. And Marsley, my God, this young woman, she's a lot older in the show than she is in the books. In the books, she's only 15. Uh, But I think for propriety's sake, they made Marsley older because Fergus is around 30. And so there was this huge age gap, which I know um, I don't need anybody lecturing me on presentism. It didn't weird me out the way that it (laughs) did a lot of people. But I'm just explaining that 
um, there was this 15-year age gap between Fergus and Marsley in the books, and that bothered a lot of people. But when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, that happened a lot in the 18th century. Age really was just a number. Older men married younger women most of the time because they felt with each marriage that they needed children out of that marriage. And the hard fact is that a lot of women died really young in childbirth and illness. Childbirth was the number one killer of young women back in the 18th century. Basically, before the discovery of antibiotics and puerperal fever, it was the leading cause of death in women. So Fergus is older than Marsley, and they made Marsley older in the show because they felt that it would be received better. I think they also made Fergus a bit younger in the show, so the age gap is probably like, it's still a decent size one, but it's about half. So I would say probably like seven or eight year age gap. Overall, I really love the character of Marsley, and in the books, she's not as striking of a character. And in fact, Diana really, in I think it was Drums of Autumn, Diana forgot about Marsley altogether, and then she had to make up this story about how she was in Jamaica because she was pregnant and she didn't want to sail. And then Fergus went down to get her or whatever. So she had to make up this story in retrospect because she forgot to put Marsley into the story. So Marsley is not a big character, especially in like Voyager and Drums, but she does have a significant presence in the series. And I think that it all boils down to Lauren Lyle and her portrayal of Marsley. Stars and the writers fully recognized what they had with Lauren and decided to up the ante, give her more to do, utilize the the talent that you have in front of you. I just appreciate this scene so much for how feisty Marsley is because she's not willing to sit down and take it like most women are in that age. And I think that she does. She's a lot like Claire in that way. There is nothing quite as powerful as the image of her being feisty with Jamie and Jamie kind of stands over her looming there. He's like a solid 18 inches taller than her. He literally towers over her and she just stares up at him, not blinking and holds her ground and says, I'm marrying this man. And if you want to take me back to Scotland, I will tell everyone that he has bedded me anyway. So I'll either be married or I'll be ruined. And Jamie is put between a rock and a hard place because either way, he loses. (laughs) Leary's either going to have him killed because he let Marsley get married and go with him, or his adoptive son has now ruined her daughter. So either way, Leary is just going to lose her shit. But I absolutely love that he, he decided to stick with it. He's like, fine, you can come with us to Jamaica. But after that, you're going straight home. It is really just phenomenal. I identify with Marsley a lot in this episode because she is having such a hard time with Claire. In her eyes, Claire is a homewrecker and there's nothing more disdainful than that. She can't have any lick of respect for this woman because in her eyes, she ruined her family. And she tells Claire as much. She's like, so wait a minute, you're not going to interfere with Jamie on my behalf because it's none of your business. But yet you came in, stole my father from my mother, ruined my family, and 
yeah, that was your business, but this isn't your business. So I really love that she speaks her mind. She's not afraid to say what she thinks, what's going on in her head. You always know where Marsley stands. She's brutally honest. And I honestly can say she's one of my favorite characters in the show version of Outlander because she's just so phenomenal. She's a great character. I'm sure that the writers have such a fun time writing stuff for her because she's she's so fun to watch on screen. For Jamie, the whole situation of Fergus and Marsley is probably pretty taxing because not only does he have to worry about Leary, he's already devastated her once and now somebody's going to have to break the news to her that Marsley has eloped with Fergus and is leaving for America or the the West Indies at this point with Jamie and Claire. So that's going to be rough and him trying to imagine how to explain that. It's just so funny because he says, does your mother Ken? And she said, I wrote her a letter. And he just looks off in the distance. He says, she's going to have me killed. <laughs> so um, that always gives me a little bit of a giggle this entire scene. But honestly, Trying to imagine what Jamie's going through is a very interesting situation because on the one hand, I think he's really hurt that he had no idea that Fergus and Marsley were a thing. I mean, he's the father figure for both of these individuals. He's Fergus's adoptive father and he's Marsley's stepdad. So to have just no clue that this had been going on, it really must have hurt him a bit. And you can see this in the conversation that Jamie and Fergus have where he's like, you hardly know her. What makes you think that this is a good idea? Fergus says, well, you didn't know Milady very long before you were married. And Jamie says, well, that was different. We were forced to marry. And Fergus looks at him and says, me lord, you forget. If you were forced to marry Milady." then I'm forced to breathe and my heart is forced to beat. So Fergus is like, I'm not naive. Like, look, I know how it is between you two. And what I'm trying to tell you is I feel the same way about Marsley. And Jamie fires back with, if you felt this way about her, then why didn't you tell me? Like, why couldn't you be honest with me about this? And Fergus is saying, I was scared. And Jamie is proving Fergus right in his fear because he's having such a strong negative reaction to this news. I can 100% understand why Fergus and Marsley did not tell Jamie and Larry because there's no way on heaven or earth that they would have understood and approved of the marriage. This was something that Marsley and Fergus were going to have to take on on their own if they wanted it to be done. They weren't going to be able to wait for permission. And I think that they probably did figure that Jamie would give in eventually just because he is so fond of both of them. But Leary absolutely would never have approved of Fergus, just knowing where he came from in his past. But Jamie does give Fergus a bit of good fatherly advice. And he says, look, if you can't be honest with Marsley about who you are and what you've done, this marriage is never going to work. Doesn't have a chance in hell. So I think that is something that as the show and the books evolve from this point, we really do see them putting that into practice, this this practice of complete and utter honesty. It's something that has proven worth its salt in Jamie and Claire's relationship. It's what makes them so strong as they don't have secrets from one another. 
And that makes their bond almost impenetrable. There's nothing that somebody can say, oh, well, I bet he didn't tell you this and break this trust that they have in one another. That goes beyond anything when it's like my husband and I share all of our secrets, everything. It makes it really hard for somebody else to weasel their way in between you. So I think that that is definitely something that Ferguson Marsley put into practice. And it was really good to see that conversation between Jamie and Fergus to kind of get into their headspace and understand what the other is thinking. That genuinely, on both sides, their feelings are hurt. While we can understand both sides of it and why their feelings are hurt, we can also understand why there wasn't that honesty there. So it's a very interesting situation. And, and I just like breaking it down. And then on the other hand, we see... The conversations between Claire and Marsley, this complete disrespect that Marsley has for Claire based on who she is and how she came into her life. I can't blame Marsley at all for behaving the way that she does. I get it completely. It is really hard to accept a decision that an adult has made in full consent that has ruined somebody else's life. And to get past that takes a lot of work and effort on both sides. So I get that too. And it's also really great to kind of build that tension because whenever they're told Claire and Marsley, you're rooming together to protect Marsley's virtue. And Claire's like, um, well, apparently you're protecting my virtue as well. Like, have you forgotten that we've just been separated for 20 years and now you're asking me to sleep with this girl instead of being in your bed? Like, have you lost your mind? So, um, I really do appreciate that as well. Just kind of this banter that we've got going between Jamie and Claire, uh, also developing the characters of Fergus and Marsley. So I felt that that was a very good secondary plot to have. And then, of course, to round out the episode, we've got Mr. Willoughby's story, Yi Tin Cho. And it is an intense story. He basically was happy living his life, being a poet in China. And then all of a sudden, his writings caught the attention of one of the emperor's wives. So he was asked to be in her household to write her poems and all kinds of tributes and beautiful stuff. Like she was basically going to bankroll him. But in exchange for this bankroll, he had to become a eunuch, which for any developed man who knows what he's giving up, I cannot imagine that that would be a choice you would take lightly. That's like asking a woman to give up all her lady parts and give up any hope of having children. That would be a really hard decision to make, honestly. And I can see his debacle. And he decided that it wasn't worth it, that he wasn't willing to give up his manhood and his love of women for a job, basically. But in refusing that job, it was basically an insult to the emperor and to the emperor's wife and was a death sentence. So he fled to Europe and Jamie found him there. But basically what we find out is that his life has been misery since he set foot on the continent because... He's viewed through the eyes of racial bias. And I think that this is something that really extends into the book and was not something that I was fond of in the books because I just felt like seeing somebody in that frame of mind, like just really stereotypical, 
it really bothered me. And so this version of Willoughby that we get in the show, I I like so much more because he's so relatable. You can really understand his plight. Whereas in the books, yes, we still get the same information, but he's not as sympathetic of a character. So it was really hard for me to take hold of his story and internalize it and understand what he was going through as a character in Voyager. When he fled and he came to Scotland, he did it because he loved women. And then to come to a place where women view you as scum of the earth, that must be the worst kind of rejection and pain because you literally gave up everything. He gave up his livelihood. He gave up his honor. He gave up his homeland all to come to a place where he's viewed as a worm, as he puts it. And that even the lowest of low, like the most dirty whores, won't have sex with him. So he is like, sometimes I wonder if it was even worth it. You know, he's telling this story as a distraction because he knows that wind and rain is coming. And he's really just trying to buy time. But at the same time, this is the story that he's been holding on to for so long Claire asked him, would you tell your story to me? And he says, no, because once it's out there, I have to let it go. A story told is a life lived. That is my quote of the episode because I find it so fitting. Once people know your story, it gives you purpose. It gives everything that you went through meaning because it could potentially help somebody else or make them understand you or even humanity on a deeper level. I love that line. A story told is a life lived. So I got to thinking about this whole story and how Willoughby says that I've come to a world where no woman is worthy of love because of how they treat him. Like that, that is in itself an offensive <laughs> phrase. But when you look at it, he's viewing it that way because of how they treat him. They treat him like he's not worth the dirt on their boots. And yeah, I I would find it hard to find somebody worthy of love if they treated me that way. I'm not going to lie. That's really hard to process. But with the bond that Claire and Mr. Willoughby have, it really made me think like when they share this smile and she thanks him for his actions on the ship, he smiles at her. And I really just thought in that moment she is one of the women that he actually believes is worthy of love. That she is compassionate enough to bother to understand him, to view him as a friend. And I really, really loved that little exchange between them because I felt like it goes a long way in the message of acceptance in other cultures and races, ethnicities, religions, the whole gamut. I, I love the relationship between Claire and Mr. Willoughby. So where we leave this episode, the plague ship. <laughs> this is one of the plot lines that I wish had been cut out of the books. <laughs> I wish it was one of the things that did not make it into the show because I, I do not like this storyline, guys. Honestly, the whole like um, ship captain apprehending Claire because she's the only person that can give them medical help, blah, blah, blah. I find a bit ridiculous. I'm sure there were instances of this happening in history. And she is a British subject. So technically, yes, he can press her into service. It is legal. 
but doesn't mean that I appreciate the plot choice. And I don't like that, once again, Jamie and Claire have been ripped from each other just when they're getting things straightened out. So I really was disappointed that this was kept in the show. I mean, I get it. It's all for excitement's sake. But yeah, that's where we're at. We ended with Claire being abducted on the high seas. So next week, we will see how Jamie handles that little tidbit. And... We will get a little more insight into Claire's whole situation. So that leaves us with my performance of the episode, which this week was Gary Young, who plays Mr. Willoughby. I thought he did a fantastic job creating a very compassionate and relatable character. I really thought that he was very compelling in how he was telling his story, his oration, as I put it. So I I did really like him as a character. And then my honorable mention was Lauren Lyle, because like I said, I think she is extremely compelling. My eyes never leave her when she's on the screen. She's always a major scene stealer for me, just in her facial expressions, the little eye roll she does. And she's such a feisty, feisty little girl. (laughs) And she brings a great quality to Marsley that makes her magnetic versus somebody that blends into the background. And with all of my thoughts out of the way, I want to take a moment to read some of your thoughts on this episode 309. Not a lot of comments this week, which I was kind of surprised about. But then again, I do kind of understand because like I said, these next few episodes are not a favorite amongst the Outlander fandom by a long shot. So I do understand. I've got a couple of comments. The first is from Joan Cohen. She says, I'd forgotten how much I liked this episode. The pace never lags and there were some outstanding moments for secondary characters. Marsley, that girl is a spitfire. She has some of the best lines and looks. The eye roll at Fergus, her expressions towards Claire. I love that she's not afraid to stand up to Jamie and give him a piece of her mind. The confrontation between all four characters and everyone's reactions to the sleeping arrangements is pretty funny and believable. Furzily are adorable as a couple. I hope we get to see even more of them in season six. Willoughby has been remade into a much better character and Gary Young brings a quiet dignity to the role. His story was mesmerizing for his audience and his palpable anger at the end was riveting. However, as good as it was, I have a hard time believing that sailors who were riled up and looking for a scapegoat would suddenly stop and listen just because he rang the bell, instead of grabbing him to throw overboard. It's a relief to see Jamie and Claire start to find their footing again after the angst of last week. Claire's hair being down and losing some layers of her batsuit are a very nice visual cue that she's feeling more relaxed with Jamie. The tender moment after their romp below decks was lovely, although I found the inclusion of the King of Men joke really irritating. Claire sharing her sorrow with Jamie over missing Brianna and his being able to accept that she feels oath-bound to help those in need were big steps forward. Captain Leonard and Elias Pound look just as I imagined them, spot-on casting choices once again. I have to say that Jamie climbing the rigging in his flowing shirt and high boots was just swoon-worthy, lol. But I feel for Sam, I hope he didn't have to do too many puking takes. I know, his puking was so bad. There's lots of puking in this episode and next episode. 
But yes, I loved, I forgot to mention to you guys, and I'm sure a lot of you know that like literally the entire invention of Mr. Willoughby as a character was simply because Diana needed a way to get Jamie across the ocean without him dying of seasickness. (laughs) So thus Mr. Willoughby was created so he could perform acupuncture on Jamie. And I really did love that. Uh, He just didn't tell Claire because he didn't want to like make her feel useless and he didn't want to offend her in any way. Which was cute. Like, I get that he's walking on eggshells around her because they're really insecure in their relationship. But I love that they kind of at the end of it, she's like, I wouldn't want you to suffer just to save my pride. Like, come on. So that was cute. And yes, I really feel for Sam. Like, those puking takes just have to take it out of you. Joan, I wasn't really that bothered about the King of Men comment. I actually thought it was kind of cool. Like, I know that the King of Men term is not something that book readers really like. Um, It's something that the show watchers kind of invented. But um, I did like the little nod to the fandom because he kind of does have that reputation now. And to be quite honest, like he's clearly a character created by a woman. So a lot of his actions, especially on the show, are not entirely realistic. I think that they um, exceed every woman's expectation of the male gender. (laughs) So yeah, I thought it was kind of cool that they tucked it in there like that. That's interesting that you felt Mr. Willoughby, like that whole situation was a bit unrealistic. I agree with you that Gary Young was very compelling in that scene, but I never really thought about it that all the sailors just kind of stopped to listen to him. Wow, thanks for pointing that out. That's going to bother me. <laughs> the next comment is from Kathleen Kosel. It says, The calligraphy was so beautiful, especially how ethereal it was once it started to evaporate off the ship's planking. There was discrimination against Mr. Willoughby as there has historically been against people by those who think their culture is superior to another. I love that he rose to the occasion to save the ship against ultimate destruction from mutiny or murder, by sacrificing his life for that of the others, even though he knew the wind was coming. Very clever, not unlike Claire's and Jamie's ability to survive challenges in the same way. Adaptability. These ship crossings had to be absolutely frightening. Yes, I loved that part of this episode. Like, that was the entire theme, and I think it was the point of this episode, was to show all of the superstition behind sea crossings and sailing in general, there are a lot of different things that take place and that the captain, even though he might not necessarily agree with the crew, he's not going to do anything to stop them because he doesn't want to jeopardize his control. Or, And I'm like, but it's only an illusion of control. If you're saying you can't even try to stop them because then they will mutiny, you have no control to begin with. So the whole character of Captain Reigns really bothers me to the extreme. He's one of the things that I can't stand about these next few episodes. But it was interesting to see all of the superstitions surrounding the sailors, touching the horseshoe, um, redheads are bad luck, and so are women, and oh, the bit about the uh, banana on the French frigate. (laughs) So uh, I really did appreciate all, all of that. It was very interesting for me to hear it because I'll be the first to admit I'm not well-versed on sailing superstitions and lore. The last comment of this episode is from Jacqueline Gilbertson. 
She said, I didn't enjoy this episode as much as most others. It was a little boring to me. I think the acting was excellent, though, just didn't enjoy the storyline, I guess. Jacqueline, you're not the only one that feels that way. Um, I do think that this episode had a lot more better points than some of the back half of season three, but like I said, still doesn't hold a candle to the beginning of season three and a lot of episodes from other seasons. So yes, I do feel your pain a little bit and we will get through the back half of season three together. That brings my analysis on 309 The Doldrums to a close, guys. A little bit of news on the Outlander front this week. They have cast the Christie family for season six. For those of you that have not read the books, I will not spoil anything, but this family is a bunch of troublemakers. Let's put it that way. Per Outlander tradition, so they are very prominent in the storylines for book six and therefore I'm guessing are going to be very big characters for season six, especially given some of the plot lines that they pulled from book six to end season five with. It just makes sense for me to make the Christie's the primary focus for season six. So we've got Tom Christie, Malva Christie, and Alan Christie. Tom Christie is going to be played by Mark Lewis Jones, who I have seen in The Crown, I think is the only project that I've seen him in, but he was really good in that one episode that he was in. I do think that he has a really great voice for Tom Christie. I can totally see it. So I'm excited to see him. Jessica Reynolds will be playing Malva Christie, and she also is exactly like I pictured Malva, really small and dark-haired. She's kind of got that quality about her that makes others feel like they want to protect her. And then we've got Alexander Vlahos playing Alan Christie, and I think that his storyline is going to be beefed up a little bit in the show versus the books, and I'm very excited to see what we can expect from this new trio. Overall, I'm loving these little tidbits that are popping in for Outlander Season 6. Can't wait to see what they announce next. I know they are currently in Block 2 of filming, getting ready to go into Block 3, so that should be extremely interesting. And I am ready for the next bit of news, even though we just, just got this news on Friday. So I'm drinking it all in. Hope you guys are enjoying this warmer weather that we are getting. I know in the Midwest, it's been so nice to kind of be above freezing. Next week, we're going to be discussing 310, Heaven and Earth. We are going to be halfway through our high seas adventure for Outlander. In the meantime, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.